Hello and welcome to episode three of Popular Antiquarian, the podcast about exploring the past to improve the present. Each episode, I, Hieronymus J. Doom, look at something created before the turn of the millennium and attempt to explain why I think it's more deserving of your time than the Snyder Cut of Justice League or Homes Under the Hammer. This episode, I'm looking at a game very close to my heart, Wario Land 2, which was released on the Nintendo Game Boy and the Nintendo Game Boy Color in 1998. The Game Boy line of handheld consoles are some of my very favourite gaming machines of all time. I still have the original Game Boy that I had as a child, and I bought a Game Boy Advance for my collection of retro gaming tat, and that console in particular still gets used quite a bit. I never owned a Game Boy Color at the time, since it came out while I was at university, and both my free time and scanty disposable income were both tied up in the important business of killing every available brain cell with alcohol. I got into retro gaming in a big way in my 30s, when it became clear that I wasn't going to be able to afford a current generation console, and I absolutely fell in love with the Game Boy Color. One of the things I admire about Nintendo is that they've rarely chased pure power, and that means that the current generation of Nintendo consoles always feels more like part of the last console cycle. And that means that developers get to release new games that apply everything they've learned from developing for the last console cycle. The idea of releasing a new 8-bit console in 1998 would seem like insanity. The PlayStation had been out for four years by that point, but Nintendo had proved that battery life and good games could make power almost irrelevant in the handheld market. The Nintendo Entertainment System had come out in 1983, which meant the Japanese publisher had 15 years of experience with the abilities and limitations of 8-bit processors by the time the Game Boy Color came around. I think there's a lot to be said for creative endeavours that are circumscribed by limitations. It's a theme that's going to crop up repeatedly in this podcast. Artistic freedom is fantastic, but I feel that the very best art is often produced by people working within some kind of limits. Whether that's hard limits, like the processing power of a humble console, or soft limits, like the conventions of a genre. Wario Land 2 is a sequel to Wario Land Super Mario Land 3, itself a sequel to Super Mario Land 2, itself a sequel to Super Mario Land, which was a launch title for the Game Boy all the way back in 1989. Wario was originally the antagonist in Super Mario Land 2 and was a kind of evil reflection of everyone's favourite plumber turned full-time hero. The notion of a bad guy who reflects an alternate take on a hero has a long lineage in art and culture. Perhaps the most famous example of this trope is Bizarro, Superman's inverted alter ego whose presentation is both surreal, humorous and somehow oddly tragic. You can see elements of this same trope at work in Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There are elements of doubt in that story. There are suggestions that Hyde does not 
represent quite such a radical deviation from the character of Henry Jekyll as the Doctor would like the readers to believe. And that's something that you can explore very much with characters who are distorted reflections of heroes. They can reveal something potentially about the original hero. In the case of Wario, I think to an extent he reveals the latent greed inherent in Mario's depiction in his early games. As is often the case, you can trace the development of the platform itself through the games in the Mario Land series, despite them all being fundamentally side-scrolling platform games. In Super Mario Land, you are presented with a tiny version of Mario, which owes more to his appearance in Super Mario Bros. for the NES than his subsequent appearances. Just as Super Mario 3 represented a graphical leap forward for Mario on the NES, Super Mario Land 2 on the Game Boy gave us a much more characterful version of the sprite in that first handheld game. In the first Mario game for the Game Boy, the designers were keenly aware that the size of the screen was extremely small and focused their attention on creating a game where you could see a decent portion of the gaming world. This created the illusion that you were appearing at a Mario game from a great distance. By the time the sequel came around, the capabilities of the Game Boy were becoming much more obvious and it was clear that good level design could mitigate the small screen sufficiently to allow for larger sprites that looked more sophisticated. It was also clearly possible to bring over elements from Super Mario Bros. 3 and Super Mario World, which would allow players to return to previously beaten levels and hunt for collectibles and secrets. Super Mario Land 2 proved you could have a premium-feeling Mario experience on Nintendo's humble handheld hardware. It also gifted us with Wario, a gift which I feel humanity at large has been insufficiently grateful for over the last 30 years. Wario Land, Super Mario Land 3, being Wario's first solo game. Oh, it is really complicated keeping track of all of these different games with deeply similar names. Was an interesting game. Aside from giving us the chance to play as Wario, previously only an antagonist, it took the opportunity to create something which simultaneously felt familiar to people who had played Mario games, but also something which had its own identity. This makes sense both creatively and from a business perspective. While the Game Boy had shown that it could create an experience that rivaled the best 8-bit Mario games, the release of Super Mario World had moved the franchise forward considerably, and it had turned it into something that the Game Boy couldn't hope to emulate. There was a risk that Mario games on handheld would end up feeling like poor stepchildren of the premium 16-bit games currently on the market. One way to avoid direct comparisons is to move in a new creative direction. I always wondered whether there might have been legs in making Super Mario Land 3 a spiritual successor to the Western release of Super Mario Bros. 2, a Mario reskinned version of a pre-existing game that played very differently from anything else in the franchise, but that's a story for another day. By making Wario the focus, Nintendo were able to have a Game Boy game that felt recognisably part of the broader Mario franchise, while still retaining its own flavour and mechanics. This meant that Wario Land wouldn't be competing directly with 16-bit Mario games, 
and also presented an experience that you could only get on Game Boy. Wario, as presented in the first Wario Land game, had his own moveset and physics, while still retaining elements from his more heroic alter ego. His signature move is a bullish shoulder charge, which sends him hurtling across the screen, and that feels very different to Mario's jumping attack. While Mario could only really pick up Cooper shells, Wario is able to pick up most enemies and yeet them at his enemies. There are a selection of power hats, which feel both similar and different to the various outfits that Mario can pick up on his adventures. In general, he feels bulkier than Mario, and the game takes care to try and emphasise his weight and his physical presence. Wario Land is a pretty good game, but we're here to talk about the sequel. Wario Land 2 moves further away from the Mario template and really establishes something that has its own unique identity and gameplay. We are still in side-scrolling platform territory, but things like lives and traditional power-ups have been dispensed with in favour of some unique mechanics. In the first Wario Land game, Wario started off big, but taking damage could turn him into an adorable tiny version of himself with a cute little Mohican. Taking damage would lose a life and force you to restart the stage. In Wario Land 2, however, there's no tiny Wario in sight. In fact, there's no lives at all because Wario can't die. Getting hit by enemies just causes him to freak out and drop some of his coins. He also gets knocked back, and this is cleverly built into the core design of the levels. If some near do well gives him a slap, he's likely to fall off a platform, and this will often send him plunging all the way back to somewhere near the start of the area he's in, forcing him to restart a section in a similar fashion to if he'd lost a life, but without the same interruption to play. The power-ups are gone, replaced by temporary status effects, which are conferred by monsters interacting with Wario. These are frankly amazing, because they can be both positive or negative, depending on the level design that surrounds them. When a bat drops a heavy weight on Wario's head, he gets flattened into a little pancake man. Little pancake Wario can't jump, which can be a problem, but he's also small enough to squeeze through narrow gaps, and his falling animation changes, allowing him to drift to platforms that would otherwise be out of reach. Being set on fire is a bit rubbish, or so I'm led to believe, but there's blocks that can only be passed by destroying them with fire. A nasty critter with a hammer bonks Wario, turning him into a living spring for a while. This can help you to jump higher, but also you can't stop jumping until it wears off, making it easy to wind up somewhere you weren't intending much higher up the level. This creates many situations where you aren't entirely sure whether getting a status effect is something you want to avoid or something you need to progress. A traditional life structure would discourage you from experimenting until you'd exhausted all other options, but with no fear of death and the worst outcome being knocked back to the beginning of the level or sent on some kind of amusing detour, there's little downside to actually trying it out. Low penalties for experimenting is also something that works extremely well with the limitations of the Game Boy, especially the limited screen real estate. This was something that tended to be devil otherwise good Game Boy and Game Boy Color games. You could either have tiny sprites and see a decent amount of what was going on, or have larger and more characterful sprites and be faced with moments where you really didn't have enough information 
to make an informed decision about where to send your hero. Games like Wario Land 2 did a fantastic job of making you forget that screen real estate was so limited, simply because it very rarely matters. Another thing that encourages experimentation is that there's more going on in each level than simply getting to the end. Wario, as we'll discuss in a moment, is on a mission for treasure, and there's treasure hidden in each and every level. Some of them are fairly easy to find, but others require some lateral thinking or a bit of exploration to locate. The game is, unsurprisingly, fairly easy to beat. I replayed it on a couple of long train journeys and got to the end without issue. If you want to try and 100% it though, that's a whole other story. As well as finding all the treasures, there's also a mini-game at the end of each level which can award you a piece of a picture which you fill in gradually as the game progresses. It's a much bigger task and one that could keep you playing for a long time, not least because the treasure mini-game and the picture mini-game both cost coins to play meaning you're going to want to avoid getting hit by any monsters at all if you want a reasonable chance of getting through them all. I love this sort of thing, and I wish more games did the whole easy-to-beat, hard-to-100% thing, because I think it strikes a neat balance between making the game accessible to anyone who pays for it, and games have never been cheap, while still providing a challenge for players who want to show off their elite gaming skills. The only big issue is that neither of the minigames is especially compelling. The treasure one involves eight face-down cards being simultaneously flipped over for a short time and then the player needing to correctly identify the location of a specific card to win the treasure. That's not exactly thrilling, but at least there's some skill involved. The picture minigame involves trying to work out what number is being displayed. Paying 50 coins a time gradually reveals more of the number until you're certain what it is. The number is disambiguated slowly, and there's no real skill involved, beyond being able to recognise what numbers are, and the random nature of the disambiguation makes it frustrating, especially if you're short on coins. Those are minor quibbles, and honestly, I quite like a few, and I do mean a few, rubbish bits in games, because that variation in quality tends to concentrate your mind on just how good the rest of the game is. So that is Wario Land 2, a side-scrolling platformer with puzzle elements and a clever set of gimmicks that make it particularly suited to the Game Boy hardware. All of those elements make for a great game, but the thing that makes it one of my favourite games of all time is something more ephemeral, and that's Wario himself. I said earlier that many characters have a kind of evil twin who exists as a dark reflection of their worst qualities, and I think Wario might just be my favourite version of that trope. Mario has a kind of everyman charm. By a quirk of history, this dungaree-wearing Italian has ended up as one of the finest exemplars of the plucky video game hero. He's curiously out of place in almost every situation in which he appears, but it's that outsider quality that makes him such a compelling protagonist, because we, as the person playing the game, are also out of place in the wacky world of video games. While other video game heroes are products of the world in which they exist, Mario is always an insertion. 
and even today that makes him an oddly appealing surrogate for the player. Although he tends to be upbeat, he sometimes exhibits a subtle confusion or nervousness that suggests he's all too aware of the dangers of the world in which he finds himself, and this combination of qualities allows for a very strong identification with his adventures. Perhaps we too could stamp mushrooms to death if that could prevent a nightmare union betwixt a giant turtle and a broadly human-looking woman. Just imagine the children of this unholy marriage, born with shells but unable to bear the weight with their puny all-too-human bodies. They would be begging for death before they were even five years old. It must be stopped. If Mario represents a cartoon every man, then Wario represents the urge for self-gratification, implicit in gaming writ large. While Mario has a slight plumpness that suggests an ordinary life, Wario has a big round beer gut that suggests vast appetites given their full head. He's not chubby, he's burly in a way that conveys a tremendous physicality. Whereas Mario's motivations are those of a hero, Wario is motivated by his overwhelming greed and desire for status. He doesn't want to save the world. He wants to create a massive castle that will outshine Mario's home, and he wants to fill it with treasure because that's another marker of status. He's greedy and venal, but also possessed of a tremendous liveliness. He comes across as someone utterly consumed by the moment. Where Mario sometimes seems hesitant, Wario always conveys a vigorous commitment to whatever course of action he's currently engaged in. He comes across as completely and unapologetically alive. This is brought out beautifully in Wario Land 2. His resting expression is a wide, toothy grin, which mingles both joy and anger in equal parts. He's simultaneously furious at the world and having the absolute best time. His sprite has been considerably reworked for this game, and it heightens everything about him. His jump has a smoother arc, and his shoulder barge feels even more powerful. You get a profound impression of someone hurling their entire body forward and damn the consequences. Mario is the sort of person you might run into in Marks and Spencer's buying sensible shoes for a weekend in the south of France. You might chat about the football and ask how the wife is doing. Wario's the sort of person you might run into in a Weatherspoons, ordering five vodka Red Bulls, and then run into again four hours later at a late-night takeaway, trying to fight the enormous mixed doner kebab he's just bought. They're both relatable experiences in their own way. It's just that Wario represents the kind of people we might be if we didn't think about any decision for even a moment, but committed to those decisions Absolutely. It's an amazing thing to be able to suggest so much character from a mere handful of pixels, and without Wario ever speaking a single word of dialogue, but it's one of the most important elements of video game character design. Unlike traditional media, video game characters are defined by what they do more than the things they say. And there's a real art to conveying that. For another example, you can look at the Lego Star Wars games, another masterclass in character design. To be able to distill 
the essence of those characters into simple Lego form and have them be instantly recognisable through the way they move and the way they act is a fantastic accomplishment. You could paste the animations onto generic Lego figures and they'd still be instantly recognisable. And I'm a sucker for this kind of character building. I'm someone with very little patience for cutscenes and dialogue in video games. If I want to watch a movie, I'll watch a movie. I see video games as games first and foremost, and I tend to actively resent periods of downtime when I'm not being allowed to actually play the game. The flip side of this is that I love world and character building and storytelling that emerges from play itself. And Wario Land 2 is a wonderful example of exactly this kind of approach. To understand Wario, you have to become Wario, at least for a moment, and that's awesome. Okay, that's all for this episode. You can get in touch with me by emailing hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. Don't forget that you can also listen to really quite a lot of episodes of my other podcast, Fantastic Fights, in which I play adventure game books out loud and talk in exhaustive detail about game book design. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.